This is the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. I'm Andrew Breskin, the Kosher Sommelier. Each show, we will discover some of the amazing stories and personalities in the world of wine. Wine tasting, wine making, fine dining, and one of my favorite subjects, the wine business. So pour yourself a glass and enjoy the conversation. All right, everybody, what's going on? It's Andrew Breskin, your kosher sommelier, just me today. Um, we are in the final stages of the Jewish year, making our way to the new year and all the associated holidays and whining and dining that goes along with that. So hope everyone is warming up your livers for that experience. It's going to be great. I know that we tend to save most of the better wines for after the new year and enjoy it in a more relaxed environment. But many people save their biggest and baddest wines for the holiday itself, Rosh Hashanah, which is coming up pretty soon for those who are listening in real time. So with that, what I wanted to discuss today was something that has nothing to do with that, basically wanted to acknowledge the time but we had a um, someone wrote an amazing article for the San Diego Jewish Journal Uh, that was me so patting myself on the back over here but in that article it was about Rosh Hashanah wines and after our um, road trip to Northern California to visit a bunch of wineries One thing that I really kind of got excited about was some white wines that were being produced. Now we had more than our fair share of reds and it was awesome, but I have been thinking about white wines in the kosher space for a long time now. Maybe not a long time now, but like whatever. I've always had my eye on it because I'm kind of a white wine guy. Uh, Many people know that I'm super into champagne and but it's not limited to that it's also white wine in general because i really feel that there is a huge place for white wine that is not currently being uh, utilized and people aren't paying attention to white wine in the kosher space so while i was on the road tasted a few whites and it kind of got me thinking about putting some thoughts together to share with you um, on the podcast over here so this is my theory all right here goes bear with me um okay so we have made like incredible progress in the world of kosher wine okay i was just uh, i made a facebook post in the kosher wine group the other day and it was in response to this wine spectator article about rosh hashanah had some nice wine selections etc etc uh you know no duds pretty respectable i didn't pay attention to every single one but going through the you know the bulk of them were pretty good good stuff from covenant to boar etc anyway they got someone to do some menu planning and there was of course brisket and then i posted in the kosher wine group like is brisket kind of like the manischewitz of kosher food the way that Manischewitz is like kosher wine can you not have like a reference to the Jewish holidays without having a recipe for brisket that was my question Um, I think it's kind of interesting because 
you know, in one sense, like, yeah, it's maybe it's the type of food. It's like matzo ball soup. It's just associated with the with the culture, with, with the genre of food. On the other hand, it's kind of like, well, yeah, but there's more to it than that. Just like with Manischewitz, like years ago, there would be no, not even years ago, but there would be no article about kosher wine that didn't have a reference to how far we came from Manischewitz. So now, so my point of that little tangent was that basically at this point, we're in like a post Manischewitz era where we don't have to, meaning where we don't have to constantly reference the fact that you know, our our forefathers, our parents were drinking Manischewitz, and now look at us, we're drinking proper table wine, um, dry, and we know what's up when it comes to wine. So now that we've reached that point, right, and we've been drinking red wine, and everyone's happy, we've reached a point where there's basically wine from all over the world. I guess the majority of the important winemaking regions of the world are represented as kosher. I'm actually looking at, <laughs> I'm actually looking at right now on my desk two bottles of Burgundy, uh, Village Burgundy from uh, from France, 100% Pinot Noir, and it's a it's a um, it's a testimony to the fact that we've really really made it. You know, if you can get really well made Burgundy, which is some of the most desirable. Um, wine in the world, then you, it really says something about about the um, winemaking industry. So now that we've made it to this level, the question is, what's next? Okay. My opinion is like this. You know where this is going. I'm talking about white wine, but my opinion is like this. Everybody likes to eat steak, right? And with steak and with roasts and with barbecue, etc., that people like to eat, it usually more often than not will call for a big red wine, right? A Shabbat dinner, a holiday, there's going to be some sort of a prominent roast um, that is going to be associated with some sort of a red wine, right? Right. So we are definitely into red wines. So but what happens when the food taste changes and maybe people start to get a little more sophisticated uh, and by sophisticated i don't mean putting pastrami on everything pastrami wrapped x is not you know a thing or it shouldn't be in my opinion that doesn't make a dish but maybe instead of having big roasts and big birds like duck and whatnot people are going to progress into, let's say, fish, okay? Now, you can certainly have red wine with fish, and we do all the time, especially the more fattier um, selections. However, um, if you're having fish, if you're having sashimi, maybe not sushi or jushi, but uh, sashimi, or other sort of more you know, lighter, elegant fare, salads, etc., uh, here in California, it's always salad season. I'm sure on the East Coast, it's starting to wind down, although this year it's a little bit warmer, you're going to need something that's different than a big, bad, oaky, juicy Cabernet or something similar from Bordeaux. Um, and that's going to be, guess what, white wine. So I really feel that as people's palates on the culinary side are going to progress, moving from heavier food to lighter food, 
because it's just not sustainable. I don't think, and I tell people all the time, and it's just my thing. Um, and I'm not a walking model of health, so it's not really, I'm it's definitely not coming from a place of judgment. But practically speaking, I don't think that people can really keep pounding all the meat um, as much as they have. It's gonna be, I think it's gonna catch up with some people. And people are gonna look for alternatives that are a little bit you know, lighter and make people feel better when they eat it. Wine definitely makes you feel good when you drink it all the time. Food, I think, has a, a bigger effect on how a person feels. Um, of course, if you drink like four bottles of wine, that doesn't quite apply. But I definitely think that with food, what you eat definitely plays into how you feel. So as we progress, in my grand theory over here, okay, you'll indulge me. As we progress into different kinds of food that what we're used to having, there's going to necessitate some lighter wines with different profiles to match that kind of cuisine. So a white wine, perhaps, that has a little bit more acidity to liven up um, some vegetable dish or to cut the fishiness from a fish-based dish or what have you. These wines are going to become more essential to have in your cellar, in your cooler, in your stash at home to you know just open up and really enjoy with the right kind of um, right kind of cuisine now definitely burgundy is a wine that goes with your salmons and your you know even tuna and some roasted you know branzino is really popular right now uh, i can definitely see some pinot going with those but because there's not too much of it and it's pretty dear in the price department some white wines that are more functional and user-friendly everyday wines might be more appropriate and might be more well-received because, you know, it's just a proper wine to go with the kind of food that you're having. The last couple years, and this is what kind of got me, excuse me, this is what kind of got me thinking about um, the subject. The last couple years, we've had some real milestones in the world of white wine production. The most notable of which has been the German wines that have come out, the Rieslings. This is, Riesling is a classic, German Riesling is a classic winemaking region and wine genre that has never been available in kosher. Uh, there's been a lot of you know, historical, cultural reasons you wanna call it, why that's not really been something people have been interested in, um, but it came to a point where it became possible and, and it happened. So there was the um, Nick Weiss series of German Riesling. Um, there were varying levels of sweetness. I happen to prefer the uh, off dry style, the traditional, I should say, style of German Riesling with a hint of sweetness. Um, and these wines were, some of them were really excellent. There were some other producers that kind of got mixed into it as well. But this was really kind of emblematic of the idea that people in the kosher space were going to be interested in sophisticated and meaningful white wines. Now, it could be, with you know, regards to the German, that it was just such an amazing novelty and an amazing, um, amazing benchmark moment in the world of kosher wine that people were going to be all over it regardless. And I get it, um, and I will concede that. 
However, um, the fact that subsequent vintages were being produced and were being purchased um, in great haste, I think, was quite uh, significant. So, the white Riesling—I'm sorry—the white wine, specifically German Riesling, um, was definitely a smash hit, and I think it definitely speaks to the fact that people are looking for these kinds of wines. Um, another notable wine that really spoke to me uh, over the last year was the series from New York State. Okay, there was a winery in New York. They got together with some kosher folks and made a Riesling, um, sorry, made a Chenin Blanc and a Chardonnay from Long Island. And you know what? These wines are really good. And what I liked about it was that it really showed off like the style and the terroir of the region, meaning it was, it was very unique in the sense that you can tell that there was some sort of a unique personality that was typical of this region. The wines were extremely fresh, had a fantastic acidity, and also just like the right amount of sweetness. And it's not sweetness in the German reasoning, it's just an intense fruitiness, but really balanced out by such a fresh and and lively acidity that was otherwise I mean there was nothing quite like that um, that we've seen in the kosher because with the examples that we've seen so far that do have great acidity there is also a good amount of alcohol which provides a burn um, but if it's just acidity and lower alcohol then you get the zing and the tingle without the burn of the alcohol so this one had the sugar match with the acid lower lower alcohol which allowed you to enjoy a little bit more of it and it was just all in all a terrific um, a terrific production so I actually had the um, Chardonnay the other night which is why I thought about this and I have a few more bottles of the Shannon which I'm kind of hoarding but might crack one this week just to check on it um, I think they're unoaked or they, they are unoaked it's entirely stainless steel production fantastic very zippy and refreshing wines and the finish on the Chenin in particular is one that goes on and on for quite some time. Um, some of the other really nice white wines that are coming from California um, for sure Four Gates Chardonnay. This wasn't always a wine that I liked because I was looking for in my mind kind of a more steely Chablis like Chardonnay. The Four Gates is very California, meaning it's got lots of oak influence, a little bit of butterscotch, which is from the oak. Um, very ripe, lush, tropical fruit. Tropical is, is definitely a California characteristic for Chardonnay. In some of the more Grand Cru, Premier Cru level white burgundies from France, you'll get some of that um, tropical um, essence. But for the most part, French Chardonnay is not going to have that attribute. And I was kind of looking for that, but after just tasting the 13 and also tasting the recent non-vintage release, uh, the wine was just really excellent. And even though it wasn't a style that I was particularly looking for, you just couldn't, you couldn't ignore the fact that the wines were so amazingly balanced, had such intensity of flavor, and was really speaking to... Uh, the vineyard that it was coming from and so I really enjoyed it um, it was also kind of 
reminded me of another Chardonnay that I had recently, which is the La Fenetre Chardonnay made by Josh Clapper at um, now called Timber Winery in Santa Maria. That wine is from the Bien Nacido Vineyard, which is quite famous. I don't know that we've had kosher wine from that property, but it's a famous vineyard that really a lot of the trailblazers in um, Central Coast Santa Barbara wines sourced fruit from that vineyard, namely Coupe, um, ABC, which is Oban Clamat, really nice wines that um, have been sourcing from that vineyard for, I guess, at this point, decades. And this is a 100% single vineyard Chardonnay. Um, I believe it's barrel fermented and really, really intense, very round. It's got this, I think the, the most notable part of the La Fenetra Chardonnay that I thought was good was this like oiliness. It was just very thick and viscous and just the finish combined with the um, lower alcohol and the fruitiness of the wine really just made a unforgettable um, imprint on my palate that I'm still kind of tasting it. It was really unique. So basically at this point, my prediction is going to be that we are going to see a lot more exciting kosher white wines that are being produced. And there's only upside because I really feel that you don't have to spend, um, let's say, upwards of $60, $70 on a really exciting quality white wine the same way that you might have to spend that much on a cellarable um, red wine from a notable producer. You don't have to spend as much and really the flavor profile on these kinds of wines is extremely unique and they're very enjoyable by themselves as much as they are with food. I know that we're, um, we spoke with on one of the other episodes, Yaakov Oria, and he's doing a lot of cool stuff with Semillon, with Chenin Blanc, with um, the what's called Light from Darkness. It's a, a white wine made from red grapes. And so there's all kinds of exciting, um, really interesting, and I don't like to use that word if it's not actually interesting, but really interesting wines that are going to be available um, at some point, but they're just unique. And the thing about these wines is that they're so fresh and they're so tasty that it makes you want to drink them and it makes you want to understand more about them because when they're unoaked and when they're fresh, then you can taste them a lot closer to their actual production date than you could with a red wine. And then you get to track them in your cellar for a little bit of a, maybe a, a, a longer window. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you buy a red wine, you're typically going to buy it two, two and a half, three years after it's been produced. And a white wine can be made available, you know, as soon as six months after it's produced. So it just gives you a different perspective on, on tracking the wine's progression. And it's really interesting in that regard. Um, I do think we're going to see more white wines made from classical regions like Chablis, um, Champagne, um, there's been some cool stuff from New Zealand that, you know, we've had forever. Hopefully we'll start paying more attention to that. And the California guys have been making interesting stuff. Rieslings, um, Covenant made a Chenin Blanc that was quite good. Uh, Viognier is becoming a thing or has become a thing. Uh, the Weiss brothers have been doing that for a while. 
and Kosi Shios is doing that um, from Shenandoah Valley. So we're going to see more wines from classical white regions because they're really important to have a balanced wine drinking uh, perspective. And I'm really excited about that because I think that it's just important to like it was important to break out of the mold of Menashevitz and like it was important to break out of the mold of brisket. It's going to be important to break out of the mold of big goopy wines and also just red wines as a, you know, as an individual category as well. I remember just to wrap it up with this, but in my early tasting days, I would go to the shop in San Diego and there was one person who worked there who was an older guy Kind of unpleasant, but the kind of unpleasant that you would understand is from someone who's maybe bored and lonely and not just like actually unpleasant. But he was like super knowledgeable and I would just kind of, you know, use the opportunity to listen and learn. But one thing that he said that I remember always, um, well, one thing that actually was really important that he said was, um, when aging wine, that oak never actually goes away. It never dies down. It might become more integrated, but it never becomes minimized. Um, that was one thing that I always remember, not on this subject, but in general. And the other comment that he made, um, he was not a pro-white wine person, but he said white wine is red wine that's lacking pigmentation meaning it's defective. Um, it's not really wine. And that was funny because for someone who has had knowledge that was so deep and so um, so really kind of relevant to so many areas, it was interesting to have such a strong opinion against white wine. And he said the only time he would get drink white wine, he would buy perhaps a white Chateauneuf de Pop to pair with a fish if he was cooking for a girlfriend, which I wasn't sure actually existed. But it was interesting that even people who were so deep in the wine world um, really still had some biases against this kind of a product. But I think today, you know, we're getting a lot more informed. We're getting the best wines from the best regions these days. And um, this was not a kosher store or a kosher person, but we're getting the best wines from the best region these days. And when you get the best examples of something, you can really see the maximum potential and how good it can really be. So, you know, I was super excited about German Riesling. That was a category that I missed when uh, the kosher thing happened. Um, I was really excited about the New York wine, not something that I ever thought I'd be into, but you know, you have to acknowledge when something's good and it was really good. And uh, I'm excited about the other stuff coming down as well. More Chablis interesting Israeli wines and hopefully some more champagne in the future and I understand there was some other wines from the Rhone region that were produced white there's lots of Sancerre that's coming over and it's all good stuff so we should definitely have in mind to adjust our menu planning to accommodate these important wines and um, everyone will really enjoy having some more diversity in the cellar and really have some great wines at the table. So with that, I wanted to take this opportunity to thank you again for listening and for becoming part of the Kosher Sommelier community. 
And you can always reach me at Andrew at koshersom.com, kosher, S-O-M-M.com. And we are on Facebook, koshersom, on Instagram. And please like and share this podcast with anyone that you know who appreciates wine, kosher, and everything in between. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for listening to the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram where you can be part of the Kosher Sommelier community. That's Kosher, S-O-M-M. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.